0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 10, Leviticus chapters 6 and 7. Well, we've got a lot of detail to discuss today, so do your best to stay focused. This is, unfortunately, as we get into this part of Leviticus not unlike learning your multiplication tables. Okay, At times it seems a little tedious while you're doing it, but you know the reality is if you've got any hope of being able to progress and deal with broader and deeper questions, you're going to have to pass through it and gain some understanding. Or you're going to be lost. Now we've been studying Leviticus chapter 6 and we ended up last week by addressing the question of whether or not holiness can be transferred by simple contact. And perhaps the better question is not so much, can it be transferred, but will the Lord allow it to be? Right. As to whether it can be transferred, the answer is probably yes. with some limitations. As to whether the Lord will allow that to happen, in all cases, the answer is no. It seems that a person or a thing must be declared holy in order to contact something else that's holy. Something that's not been declared holy but contacts something that is holy is usually destroyed. And I maintain that that is because of the danger that something that God had not authorized to be holy could accidentally attain it. The Lord simply will not allow that to happen. So carefully guarded is His holiness as the most precious commodity in existence. Okay. So I find myself persuaded by Baruch Levine's argument that the meaning being communicated in um, chapter six, verse eleven of Leviticus is that the that only an authorized person who's in a state of holiness is permitted to touch anything that's holy. Now, we're going to continue today in Leviticus chapter 6, starting with verse 12. Let's read chapter 6, verse 12, all the way to the end of that chapter. Adonai said to Moses, This is the offering for Adonai, that Aharon and his sons are to offer on the day he is anointed, Two quarts of fine flour, half of it in the morning, half of it in the evening, as a grain offering from then on. It has to be well mixed with olive oil and fried on a griddle, then bring it in, break it in pieces, and offer the grain offering as a fragrant aroma for Adonai. The anointed priest who will take Aaron's place from among his descendants will offer it. It is a perpetual obligation. It must be made to go up in smoke, for Adonai. Every grain offering of the coin is to be entirely made to go up in smoke. It's not to be eaten. Adonai said to Moshe, tell Aharon and his sons, this is the law for the sin offering. The sin offering is to be slaughtered before Adonai in the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is especially holy. The priest who offers it for sin is to eat it It is to be eaten in a holy place, in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh will become holy. If any of its blood splashes on any item of clothing, you're to wash it in a holy place. The clay pot in which it is cooked must be broken. If it's cooked in a bronze pot, it must be scoured and rinsed in water. Any male from a family of priests may eat the sin offering. It is especially holy. But no sin offering which has had any of its blood brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place is to be eaten. It is to be burned up completely. It says that what follows is about an offering in Hebrew Korban right, that the priests are to present. And as I explained in earlier lessons, only priests can present the sacrifices and the only priestly family from among the Levites comes from Aaron. His sons, their descendants. Now this verse is very often misunderstood. It seems to indicate That there are regular occasions on which the priests are anointed with oil. And that the ritual that starts in verse 13 is then performed on these occasions. But that's not the case. Remember now, when these words in chapter 6 of Leviticus were first being spoken. It was early on in the exodus from Egypt. And these are but continuing instructions on the construction of the wilderness tabernacle and the rites and the rituals and the laws and the commands that will operate within that tabernacle. In other words, what we're reading in chapter 6 was spoken well before the tabernacle was built and before Aaron and his sons were consecrated as Jehovah's priests. So what is simply being communicated here is that beginning on the day that Aaron and his sons are officially consecrated as priests, then the ritual instructions for the tabernacle are to take effect, but not until then.
1: Now the instructions
0: begin by designating the standard amount of flour, semolina, all right, that's to be used for the minka sacrifice. And that is one tenth of an apha, about two quarts. And remember that this particular minka offering is the priest's offering. And it accompanies this twice daily Ola offering, the burnt offering. As the olah involved one ram in the morning and another in the evening, so half of this semolina was sacrificed in the morning and the other half in the evening. Now, whereas some of the minka offerings of the regular worshippers, brought by the regular worshippers, that could be eaten, none of the minka offering offered by the priests could be eaten it all had to be consumed by fire on the brazen altar the general rule of thumb is that if it is a priest's offering meaning laymen were nowhere involved in it then the entire offering brought is consumed by fire there's nothing left if it's an offering brought by laymen even though of course it's always a priest Right, who winds up putting it onto the fire, right, then usually a majority portion of that offering can be eaten. Now, we discussed before that there were a number of acceptable ways in which the flour could be prepared. However, for the priest's minka offering, only one way was acceptable. It had to be cooked on a griddle. And in addition to that, it says the dough had to be well soaked. Right. In other words, it had to have a sufficient amount of liquid, chief among which was olive oil, and it had to be a mixture such that it was on the wet side instead of on the dry side. Those of you who do baking know what I mean. Okay. Now, let's not overlook in verse 14 this constantly repeated theme that we see regarding sacrifices. It is a pleasing odor to the Lord. It's that the main purpose of burning up things on the altar is to create smoke. And the purpose of the smoke is to be a pleasant odor to the Lord. Now, for those of you who might not have been here through the later parts of Exodus and the earlier parts of Leviticus, it might be a little unsettling to read here in the Old Testament that the process of burning things up on the altar is all about making smoke. Okay, But there's no getting around it. Right? We just have to remember that while God had spiritual reasons for this, that the Israelites couldn't yet grasp, the Hebrew mind of that day thought of burnt offerings within the typical Middle Eastern cultural mindset of the, of the era. Right? And it was a common understanding among those cultures that gods were simply superhumans right? who had ears and eyes and feet and arms and noses. Right? And that they resided up in the sky so that when the smoke would float upward to where they lived, they would smell it and they enjoyed it. Now, another recurring theme presented in verse 15 is one which we also touched on earlier. Those grains and animals and wine designated for sacrifice belong to the Lord. It says, it is the Lord's. In effect, this is the definition of this term we're going to see over and over: holy property. It is anything that belongs to him is called holy property. What we find as a general rule in this section of chapter 6 is that priests may not personally benefit from the korban, the offerings that the other priests bring before the Lord. That is, they can't partake in offerings made by or on behalf of the priesthood. Rather, they can only benefit or partake of korban offered by the general population, the common worshippers. Alright, now starting in verse 17. We move from the ritual of the minkah to the ritual of the hatat, which I have decided is better to refer to as the purification offering than the usual translation of sin offering, because that's a little misleading. Notice that the Ola is a blood sacrifice, and then the Minka is a sacrifice of plant life. And now with the Haka'at, we're back to a blood sacrifice again. Let's briefly discuss just a few details about this. To begin with, just as the animal for the Ola is to be slaughtered on the north side of the altar, so is the Haka'at animal. And next we see that the priests are to eat of the sacrificial animal under the same rules as the regular Hataat offering. That's because verses 17 through 22 in chapter 6 are discussing the priest's role in the service of the Hataat when it's brought by the lay worshiper, a common man. But then it changes in verse 23 when it switches to discussing what must occur on special hata'at sacrifices that are brought by the priesthood for the, on behalf of the whole congregation of Israel verse 23 defines those special sacrifices as times when the blood from the sacrifice is brought into the sanctuary for use to be sprinkled around inside the holy place or on Yom Kippur Day of Atonement, when it's used inside the holy of holies so to be clear When a common man brings his hatat offering to the priest for the priest to supervise the ritual, then only part of the animal is burned up and another part set aside for food. But since the meat from the animal that is offered on behalf of the priest is considered kodesh kodashim, which means most holy, then only the priests are permitted to eat it. And they have to partake of it inside the courtyard of the tabernacle. They can't even eat it away from that spot. Further, it says that any blood from that animal that spatters on the priestly garments has to be removed by washing the garments in water. If any of the meat from the sacrifice that they're going to eat is prepared in a clay cooking pot, then the pot itself has to be destroyed. Because they perfectly understood that the clay was porous. It would absorb some of the qualities of that meat broth that was cooked in it, and that was a holy portion. Remember we talked about contact? What happens to the pot? Destroyed. Okay. If the priest portion was of the sacrificial meat, though, was cooked in a metal pot, then because it's not porous, it can't take on any of the qualities, so simply washing it out was sufficient. And the priest's family, by the way, also could not use this meat, since only males could participate. And I remind you of the statement that we see once again in verse 20 of chapter 6, which is usually translated, I think incorrectly, as anything that touches its flesh shall become holy. And I suggest that this is incorrect. and It should read anything that touches its flesh must be in a holy state. That's a requirement. And again, the issue is, does holy food transfer its holiness to the people and the garments and the cook pots or is it that each of the items and the priests themselves must already be in a holy state in order to touch that holy food i say it's the latter now in verse 23 things change a little bit because this is no longer about a sacrifice being brought by a common man it's about a sacrifice being presented by the priests Either on behalf of themselves, because they had to the sacrifice for themselves too, right? or on behalf of the nation of Israel as a whole. Okay. In this case, the entire sacrificial animal has to be burned up, and neither priests nor non priests can partake of the meat. They can't eat any part of that animal. Let's move on to chapter 7. Get a few more details. Leviticus chapter 7. This is the law for the guilt offering. It is especially holy. They are to slaughter the guilt offering in the place where they slaughter the burnt offering. And its blood is to be splashed against all sides of the altar. He is to offer all its fat. The fat tail, the fat covering the inner organs, the two kidneys, the fat on them near the flanks, and the covering of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys. The Kohen will make them go up in smoke on the altar as an offering made by fire to Adonai. It is a guilt offering. Every male from a family of priests may eat it. It's to be eaten in a holy place because it is especially holy. The guilt offering is like the sin offering. The same law governs them. It will belong to the cohen who uses it to make atonement. The cohen who offers someone's burnt offering will possess the hide of the burnt offering which he has offered. Every grain offering baked in the oven, cooked in a pot, or fried on the griddle will belong to the priest who offers it. But every grain offering which is mixed with olive oil or is dry will belong to all the sons of Aaron equally. This is the law for sacrificing peace offerings offered to Adonai. If a person offers it for giving thanks he is to offer it with the thanksgiving sacrifice of unleavened cakes mixed with olive oil, matzah spread with olive oil, and cakes made of fine flour mixed with olive oil and fried. With cakes of leavened bread, he is to present his offering together with the sacrifice of his peace offerings for giving thanks. From each kind of offering, he is to present one as a gift for Adonai. It will belong to the priest who splashes the blood of the peace offerings against the altar. The meat of the sacrifice of his peace offering, for giving thanks, is to be eaten on the day of his offering. He's not to leave any of it until morning. But if the sacrifice connected with his offering is for a vow, or it's a voluntary offering, then while it is to be eaten on the day he offers his sacrifice, what remains of it may be eaten the next day. However, what remains of the meat of the sacrifice on the third day is to be burned up completely. If any of the meat of the sacrifice of his peace offerings is eaten on the third day, the sacrifice will neither be accepted nor credited to the person offering it. Rather, it will have become a disgusting thing and whoever eats it will bear the consequences of his wrongdoing. Meat which touches something unclean is not to be eaten, but burned up completely. As for the meat, everyone who is clean may eat it. But a person who is in a state of uncleanness, who eats any meat from the sacrifice of peace offerings made to Adonai, that person will be cut off from his people. Anyone who touches something unclean, whether the uncleanness be from a person, from an unclean animal, or from some other unclean detestable thing, and then eats the meat from the sacrifice of peace offerings for Adonai, that person will be cut off from his people. Adonai said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You're not to eat the fat of bulls, sheep, or goats. The fat of animals that die of themselves or are killed by wild animals may be used for any other purpose, but under no circumstances are you to eat it. For whoever eats the fat of Animals of the kind used in presenting an offering made by fire to Adonai, they will be cut off from his people. You're not to eat any kind of blood, whether from birds or animals, in any of your homes. Whoever eats any blood, they will be cut off from his people. Adonai said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, A person who offers his sacrifice of peace offerings to Adonai is to bring part of the sacrifice of peace offerings uh, as his offering for Adonai, he is to bring it with his own hands, the offerings for Adonai made by fire. He is to bring the breast with its fat. The breast is to be waved as a wave offering before Adonai. The priest is to make the fat golden and smoke on the altar. But the breast will belong to Aaron and his descendants. You are to give the right thigh from your sacrifices of peace offerings to the priest as a contribution. The descendant of Aaron, who offers the blood of the peace offerings, is to have the right thigh as his share. For the breast that has been waved and the thigh that has been contributed, I have taken away from the people of Israel out of their sacrifices and of peace offerings and given them to Aaron the priest and his descendants as their share forever from the people of Israel. On the day when Aaron and his sons were presented to Adonai in the office of a priest. This portion was set aside for him and his descendants from the offerings of Adonai made by fire. On the day they were anointed, Adonai ordered that this be given to them by the people of Israel. It is their share forever through all their generations. This is the law for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the consecration offering, and the sacrifice of peace offerings, which Adonai ordered Moses on Mount Sinai on the day he ordered the people of Israel To present their offerings to Adonai in the Sinai Desert. Okay. Details. Lots of details. Recall now that chapter 7 is just a continuation of chapter 6. The entire context remains the same. Armed with that, let's continue with these priestly instructions for the next type of sacrifice the asham or what I'm going to prefer to call the reparation offering as opposed to what we read here and read in most other Bibles that will say guilt offering and in verse 7 of chapter 7 what we find is that the provisions for the asham A-S-H-A-M asham, the reparation offering are identical to those of the hatahat offering now how do I know this? Because it says so all right. And we see that this is a Kodesh kodashim, a most holy class of offering, because in verse 1 it says it's most holy, All right, which is that translation of Kodesh kodashim. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here because it's identical to what we just read about the Hatat. But just know that this is yet another kind of blood sacrifice that is an animal slaughtered, and it has to occur, it says, at the same place as the ola, which is on the north side of the brazen altar. Okay. And as with the Olah, it is the internal organ fat that's burned up on the altar. Okay. If it's not I mean if it's a sheep, then its fat tail is literally to be included. And the portions of meat that are left over, that's not put on the brazen altar, are to be given to the priests as their food, and they're required to eat that food within the grounds of the tabernacle. Now, verse 8 makes it clear that the valuable hide of the sacrificed animals is not to be burned up on the altar. Instead, it's to be given to the priests. It becomes the sole property of the priests. What would they do with a hide? Sell it for money or barter it for something else. See, the idea here is that the priests of God are to be fully cared for by the whole congregation. That's the principle. okay? And let me remind you that a modern-day pastor is not the current equivalent of a priest. Two different things. Okay? That is not to say that modern-day pastors shouldn't be supported. Alright? As that is most certainly addressed and called for in the New Testament. But the New Testament comparison for a pastor is as to a teacher of the word, not to a priest. Okay? Because a priest makes intercession. You don't need that. Okay? So, Particularly in this class, where we kind of got a pretty good picture of what a rabbi does, a pastor and a rabbi are a better comparison than a pastor and a priest. You with me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we're also told that regardless of whether the asham or the hotah is the offering of a worshipper of a priest, that the priest gets to keep the hide. This is opposed to the rule that a priest cannot keep for food meat that he himself or another priest offers. Now there are a couple of exceptions to this rule and generally it's when a sacrifice is to be burned up, not on the brazen altar at the tabernacle but when it's going to be on a common wood fire outside of the camp. When we get to that red heifer sacrifice all right, we'll talk more about that because that's what that's about being burned up outside the camp. Now, verses 9 and 10 offer this little peculiarity. If a minka offering is of dough that's been cooked, then the priest who brought it gets to keep his portion, but every other kind of minka, presumably meaning uncooked dough or flour, is to be shared among the priests. No reason for this is offered. I don't know why it is. But one thing's for sure, common men can't share in it. Verse 11 now leaves behind the Asham offering. And now we address the Seva offering, which we're going to call the peace offering. Now let me say that pretty much, and follow this, any concise name we might choose (laughs) for this offering and frankly most of the others actually doesn't fully encompass all the nuances of that offering. So calling like I'm going to, the Zebah offering, a peace offering, is only partially right. Um, every one of these offerings, Olah, Mincha, asham, they don't translate to guilt offering or sin offering. I mean, it's not a translation. All right? It's just what we call a functional translation, in that, in that it, it's a way of describing what it does. But it's not a direct translation. Now perhaps the key thing to understand about the section of chapters 6 and 7 that we're about to enter beginning with verse 11 of chapter 7 is that these now form yet another class of offerings. uh, Up to now, we've been studying in 6 and 7 a class called Kodesh Kodeshim, Most Holy we are now about to start talking about a lesser class called Kodesh Kaleem right, or offerings of lesser sanctity okay. it's not that these are offerings of no sanctity they're just not as holy as the other ones okay. so just as that front room of the tabernacle is called the holy place And the back room is called the Holy of Holies. They have different degrees of holiness. So we have most holy offerings, and now we have simply holy offerings. Two levels of sanctity. And with the Kodesh Kaleem offerings, it was permissible, therefore, for both the worshiper and the priest to eat of it. The worshiper outside of the tabernacle, the priest inside the tabernacle. Now I don't want to get your head spinning. But you need to know that there were many different kinds of Zavah offerings. We're just going to look at two primary ones for a minute. The Zavah Shlamim and the Zavah Todah. That word Todah to ring a bell with some of you. Okay? If you wandered around modern day Israel, you'd hear the word Todah. Alright? because it means thank you in its most common form. Okay. But it is also in a more technical form, and more of the sense it's used in biblical Hebrew, it more means thanksgiving. Okay. so the idea behind the Seva Toda was that there was an ex- an occasion to express gratitude, thank you, God. Right. And this gratitude was usually regarding having been delivered from some kind of a dangerous situation, like maybe you survived a battle, right? or maybe you had a serious disease and you lived. In common language, the Zeva Todah incorporated both an animal sacrifice and a grain sacrifice. Technically, the Zeva Toda was really only the animal portion. Um, and just to confuse it a little further, okay, depending on the exact kind and purpose of zevah the dough of the grain offering that accompanied it was either leavened or unleavened, but we'll just leave it at that. Just thought you'd like to know. Um, it gets pretty complex. Now, the second primary kind that I'm going to share with you all right, of the zevah offering class was called the Zevah shlamim, And it could be called the Vow Offering as it had to do with both the original pronouncement, the making of a vow that a worshipper might undertake, and it had to be performed when that vow was completed. So upon the making of a sacred vow to God, the worshipper would perform the Okay, And when the vow was completed, he'd perform it again. In the New Testament book of Acts, we read of Paul being instructed by James to pay for the vow offerings of some men who had completed their vows. If you recall that story, this was all about a time that... um, People were all over Paul, saying, "Oh, you're you're not following Torah, and you're telling people not to follow Torah." And so, James said, "In order to prove to everybody present, Paul, that you're a good Torah observant Jew, I want you to do this. I want you to pay for the vow offerings of these men." Okay, what Paul was specifically paying for was the zebah shlamim offering. for these men who were completing their vows. Now, in verse 17, we begin to receive what are somewhat general rules of sacrificial procedures, even though for the moment they're in the context of the Zabah sacrifices. And it is that there's a certain amount of time that people are given to eat the meat from sacrificed animals, whether it was a priest or a non-priest who was doing the eating. And the general rule is you've got two days at maximum to eat the meat because at the start of the third day, anything that remains has to be destroyed by fire. In fact, the instructions are pretty onerous. It says if somebody ate meat on the third day after it was sacrificed, the eating of the meat effectively negates the whole sacrifice. What had been credited to you is taken away. Never happened. Okay except that actually it would have been better if that person never did the sacrifice at all because by breaking the law about eating it before the th- uh, rather uh, by that third day that person's committed yet another sin because as of the third day the meat's deemed ritually unclean can't eat it since the shlamim could be handled by laymen common worshippers and the meat could be eaten by the worshippers pretty much anywhere outside the tabernacle we get a further admonition that should that meat touch anything unclean it should be gotten rid of shouldn't be eaten and this puts an exclamation point on the rather critical God principle that uncleanness can be transferred by contact in this case the meat began perfectly ritually clean but should it contact something or someone who's in an unclean state then the meat becomes infected with that uncleanness so the principle in a word is this uncleanness is contagious further as it states in verse 20 it's not just food that touching something unclean becomes infected with uncleanness should a worshipper become ritually impure ritually unclean same thing for instance by coming into contact with death um, then not only does that person become unclean but any food that person touches becomes unclean again uncleanness, impurity that comes into contact with something that is holy or clean makes that holy or clean thing or person now unclean. Remember our one-way street. Holiness is not permitted to be transmitted by touch or contact. Uncleanness is transmitted by touch or contact. Next, an instruction is given that no Israelite shall eat the fat of an ox, same thing as cattle, okay, or sheep, or goats. Now, some time back, we examined the word for fat. Right? And we found that there were two kinds. Halev and Shuman. Okay? Shuman was ordinary fat. The type we're familiar with. The type that's, that's under the skin of an animal. Right? Halev was the fat that covered some of the internal organs. And it was that kind of fat. that that fat that covered the internal organs that's what was burned up on the brazen altar not that stuff that was just under the skin Okay, it was this kind of fat the halev, the organ fat that was off limits verse 23 is not talking about right, ordinary meat fat so the idea is that this halev type of fatty portions of the sacrifice can never be eaten by anybody Okay. Not priests, not laymen. However, this was also in short time extended to the prohibition of eating Halev fat even if the animal hadn't been offered for sacrifice. In other words, it was off limits even during the time when you could kill an animal for food. You still couldn't eat that kind of fat. It was off limits. Okay. Now, verse 26 lays down the law that no blood can be eaten by Israelites. What this meant was that blood drained from an animal couldn't be made into some kind of food. Nor could the blood be an ingredient in cooking, nor could it be gathered and simply drank. And by the way, the drinking of animal blood is still relatively common in this world. And... um, Uh, generally outside of western culture of course but it also meant something else interesting it meant that the meat had to be well drained of its blood before they ate it and covering it in salt which is a natural absorbent helped to remove the residual blood within the various cuts of meat that both the priests and the laymen could cook and eat Remember the New Testament admonition that waste salt was only fit to be trodden upon. Remember this? The right, salt was thrown away. What this was referring to was salt that had been used to soak up the blood, all right, that residual blood, and then it was discarded by the hundreds of pounds at a time. And then it would be scattered on the paths and the roadways because what does salt do to soil it poisons it all right so it keeps it keeps the the, the, the pathways clear of plants growing up on it okay it's just that simple all right salt this fit and o- fit only to be trodden upon means that it had been used to absorb the blood of sacrifices that's what it was about okay now let me remind you yeah this stuff kind of comes into play later on, doesn't it? Now let me remind you that there was one primary reason that blood was never to be consumed by a man. It's because blood had been set aside as the one and only medium to obtain atonement. And therefore it couldn't be used for any other purpose. Blood was and remains the only means of atonement that God will accept Because it's the one and only means of atonement he is ordained. That's it. And upon the advent of our Lord Yeshua, the sacrificial system that we're studying in Leviticus transformed, whereby it still required blood for atonement, but it was only his perfect blood that could atone. The blood of bulls and goats lost their efficacy to atone for sin never to return. That is, just as God specifically ordained certain animals' blood to be spilled for each type and class of atonement upon Jesus' death and the resurrection, God ordained that animal blood was no longer acceptable for atonement. And that, my friends, is why as much on the one hand that we long for the day that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem because we know that upon its rebuilding it will literally, for absolute certainty, just be a matter of months before Messiah returns. On the other hand, the rebuilding of the temple for the purpose of sacrifice to achieve forgiveness of sins is pointless. Yet we also find in God's word that when the temple is rebuilt, that sacrificing will begin anew. And interestingly, we don't find the Bible condemning this action, or even speaking of it negatively. Okay, Therefore, there's a lot we don't know all right, or understand about this coming rebuilding of the temple and the return of animal sacrifice. And I will tell you contritely that how I felt about this Two years ago is no longer how I feel about it today. Okay? I've just learned too much that tells me that there's more mystery than answer to this question about the coming third temple and the renewal of animal sacrifices. Okay? Without doubt, the New Testament informs us that believers are this era's temple of God on earth. That's an absolute certainty. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you yourselves are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? This astounding reality is repeated and confirmed in a number of places in the New Testament. Yeshua insisted that he was greater than the temple. Listen to Matthew 12, 6. But I say to you that this is that that in this place is one greater than the temple, and he was referring to himself. Then in Mark 14, 58, Christ called himself the temple of God. We've heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with man's hands and raise up another in three days that's not made with hands. Okay. So when and how did Mankind become temples of God? On Shavuot. Okay, Pentecost in Greek. Okay, What is it that makes any man a temple of God? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay. The only thing that made the temple in Jerusalem the temple of Jehovah was because it was his dwelling place. When God's Spirit wasn't there whether it be in a man or in a temple, we're just a hollow structure serving no more useful purpose than an empty warehouse. But there is a heavy scriptural implication that his spirit is going to return to the temple when it's rebuilt. Why exactly? I'm not certain. Okay? If you want some very interesting reading about that, read the last nine chapters of Ezekiel. So at the same time that from a believer's viewpoint, a new temple is rather redundant, I want to urge caution. We really shouldn't be judgmental towards those religious Jews who yearn for that temple. okay? And those who are actively constructing temple ritual instruments and nor those who will, in the near future, officiate those temple procedures, including ritual animal sacrifice. A very dear friend of mine and a poor class is Gershon Solomon. Right, the founder and president of the Temple Mount Faithful. And as the name implies, it's that organization's goal to see that the temple is rebuilt right where it was destroyed almost 2,000 years ago. And as I hope you're beginning to see, the earliest disciples of Christ, including the apostles, even Christ himself, constantly gathered at that temple. Long after Yeshua's death, we'll find Paul participating in temple worship. In animal sacrifices, the early believers, of course, still went to the temple after Jesus' death and performed all the traditional temple ceremonies. Listen to Acts 2, 44-46. It says this, And all they who believed were together, and whatever belonged to them was of the community. And they who had a possession sold it, and divided to each one as he had need, and they continued daily in the temple with one soul. And at home they broke bread and took food rejoicing, and in the simplicity of their hearts. Some things about the Lord and His plan that at first seems so easy to understand and so black and white, turns out to be pretty complex and hard to discern. As Christians, we can at the very least view the rebuilding of the temple and the reconstitution of its animal sacrifices as a sign of where the history of the world stands. And, equally as important, As a biblical promise fulfilled. I think that perhaps the temple is going to have a different purpose and meaning when it's rebuilt. Just as the sacrifices will probably have a different purpose and meaning. The temple will, will perhaps once again mark that place on earth that the Lord chose so long ago as his earthly throne. It will be that visual confirmation and monument to his greatness and sovereignty that has been missing for 2,000 years. The sacrifices will, for a time at least, be a commemoration, in my view, of God's plan of salvation and a graphic demonstration of the work of Messiah. this to me isn't much of a stretch that this would be a commemoration Jews and Christians commemorate and honor many past events by our reenacting today portions of those events that's what we tend to do for all we know the reordination of the new temple and the rekindling of that brazen altar fire followed by a parade of bulls and rams and sheep and goats up to that altar will be the thing that impacts God's chosen people in such a way that they finally get it. Yeshua of Nazareth really did fulfill all of this. Okay. Well, back to the matter at hand. The end of verse 26 includes the phrase in any of your settlements that is the consumption of blood must not happen in any of your settlements in the Israelite settlement now why would the Bible add these words that seem to be redundant Okay, wh- where else would Yehoveh be talking about except an Israelite settlement Okay, the idea being expressed here is that this law about not eating blood is to be obeyed Not only inside the tabernacle grounds, but even outside the camp. Many of the ritual laws you see that we've encountered so far apply only to the tabernacle area. But this law about blood eating, along with some others, applies in all circumstances wherever a Hebrew lives. In modern lingo, this simply says you don't eat blood anytime, anywhere, for whatever reason. That's the deal. Okay, now, while all of chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7 of Leviticus were primarily aimed at the priesthood, verse 29 of chapter 7 is specifically directed at the people of Israel, the lay worshipers. And it is concerning the zevah Shlamim offering. And the regulation that is commanded is that the worshipper must present the zebah, shlamin, sacrificial offering himself with his own hands. But what presenting means is not that he lays that animal on the brazen altar. Because that's always a task that only a priest may perform. Rather, it's that the worshipper brings his animal... He lifts that animal up into the air and he makes a waving motion like this, presenting it to the Lord. In okay. Hebrew, this is called tenephah. Literally, presentation. So we get this picture of a common man bringing his animal to the tabernacle. It's slaughtered and whatever part is going to be burned up on that sacrificial altar is presented to Jehovah by the worshiper by waving it. Then it's turned over to the priest who lays it on the brazen altar and it's burned up to smoke and ashes. And, by the way, we tend to call this a wave offering. And it doesn't mean hi God. Okay? It's the sacrifice you're holding on. Now last week we discussed that there were two primary classes of offerings. Kodesh Kodeshim, Most Holy, Kodesh Kalim are the offerings of lesser sanctity. The Most Holy offerings don't permit, they'll permit much participation by the lay worshiper, but the offerings of lesser sanctity, Kodesh Kalim, usually did have significant participation by the one the lay person bringing the offering. Obviously, the Zeva Shlamim was a Kodesh Kaleem class of offering since the worshipper presented the offering himself to God. Now, verses 34 and 35 reinforce a couple of general rules we've already discussed. In verse 34, it says that Yehoveh has taken the meat of the Zeva Shlamim offering and he has given it to the priests. Okay. That is, the rule is that when something is brought to be sacrificed, it immediately becomes God's. It's his holy property. And it is his decision to turn some of that property that belongs to him over to the priests. The part that he doesn't give to people for food is what gets burned up. And that's his. Okay. Notice that at the end of verse 35, Right, that it explains that what has just been instructed is to take place after Aaron and his sons have been consecrated into a priesthood. Okay? That hasn't happened yet. Right? So, Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, when we just now completed 7, are talking about something that is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Okay? Even at the end of chapter 7, the wilderness tabernacle is still not yet constructed. God is just preparing Israel for what is about to come. What's about to come, we'll visit in chapter 8 next week.